Ephesians chapter 2, and as you do, I'm going to open up with a word of of prayer. Ephesians chapter 2. Father God, uh, we thank you, we love you. Uh, Father Lord, this morning as we approach the subject of unity uh, amongst all Christian brothers and sisters, Father, we pray that, that we would have a word from you. We would understand that our unity is not based upon uh, what makes us alike and the way that we look and the way that we sound and the way that we talk, but rather that our unity is solely fixed on you and the finished work of Christ on the cross. And so, Father, Lord, we, uh, we, we thank you for the, the multiple diversities that exist in the church and that will exist in the heavens to come, Father, and we pray that we would be an outworking of that here and now. So, Father, we love you. Pray you help us with all these things and more. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Ephesians chapter 2. If you're there, say amen. If you need more time, so hold up. You guys are getting good. Uh, Before we look at the text this morning, I want to talk a little bit uh, about how I grew up. I grew up in southern Ohio, as most of you know. Uh, We kind of bounced around for a while before we landed in southern Ohio, but... Uh, my, my point in, in all of this is that uh, I grew up in a, in, a, in, a, in a school and in a county which was primarily white, primarily white. Uh, in high school, we had one black kid at our school, Josh Tyler, a good friend of mine uh, to this day. Uh, he lives in Circleville. Uh, but uh, my, my point is, is that I remember the first time I ever encountered race or ethnicity differences in the majority culture of white uh, it was when I was watching the movie Volcano. You all see that movie? Tommy Lee Jones? Volcano erupts in L.A. And I'll never forget, I was watching that with my, my parents when I was, I don't know, seven, eight years old. And uh, Don, uh, Don Chettle, the guy who plays in the Marvel movies, he's in that movie. I just remember watching this movie, and I just thought he had the coolest character. He was the guy who was kind of running around, coordinating all the events, making sure everybody knew what was going on. If you haven't seen the movie, it's, a, it's an okay movie. Uh, you can check it out. But I remember looking at my mom and said, I want to be like that when I grow up. And she just kind of looked at me and said, like what? Like that guy. She said, you mean black? I said, yeah, he's cool. I want to be like the cool guys, mom. And I'll never forget. Like my, I love my parents, right? But it was almost as if they're like, ah, you probably shouldn't want to be like that when you grow up. I don't know what, it, this is like, again, seven, eight years old, young, impressionable. All I knew was white people my whole life. And here's, here's my point in all this. Because uh, we, we here in Marysville and Union County and Mary, and I looked it up, not, uh, Marysville is 90% Caucasian, white. About 4% black, 2% Asian, multiple other ones. In Marion, it's a little bit more diverse, 83% white in Marion, 10% black, and then down from there. My point is, it's easy to insulate ourselves in our culture and think that we do not have underlying racial issues. Here's my point. Our church, based upon where we sit demographically, will never be a multi-ethnic church simply because that is not the context in which we find ourselves. However, this does not mean that we should not seek gospel unity in other ways. At the heart levels, we need to ask ourselves honestly if there is anything within us which would separate us from other believers in Christ. 
So with that, let's turn to the text this morning. Ephesians chapter 2. Let's look at it with me. Verse 11. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. And might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and the members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for, the, for God by the Spirit. You see, in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 to 22, Paul is describing a deep, complex, hostile rivalry between the Jews and the Gentiles. You see, Gentiles are simply all those who are not Jews. And I don't know if you've read your New Testament or not, but one of the underlying themes in almost all of Paul's writing is how are we going to live together? How, how are we going to do this thing called Christianity with such deep, complex, hostile rivalries? The Greek word in verse 11 for, for the non-Jewish people, the word that gets translated Gentile is ethna. Right? This, this, this rivalry was uh, religious. The Gentiles did not know the God of Israel. This rivalry was cultural. Jews had rituals, feasts, ceremonies that distinguished them from the other nations. It was racial. You see, the Jews could boast of having the blood of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob flowing through their veins. And in all this, Paul is trying to say that there is something new going on here. There's something deeper going on here. So we're going to walk through this text a little bit differently than what Paul does. We're going to look at who we were. This is verses 11 and 12. But before we jump to the middle section like Paul does, we're going to look at who we are now. And then we're going to see how we got here. Who we were, who we are, and how we got here. Are you with me? Verse 11. Therefore remember, at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers of the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. You see, verses 11 and 12 paint for us the dark picture of what life apart from Christ and apart from the gospel looks like. In short, Paul's saying, you people were alienated from God. Not only were you alienated from God, you were alienated and separated from the people Oh God, you see, he addresses the readers by saying, you Gentiles in the flesh there in verse 11. He is highlighting a real physical difference between the Jew and the Gentile. He goes on to note that through the work of Christ, the physical difference, what separated them, no longer applied. 
No longer had significance. You see, he was saying it's not about the skin, but it's about the heart. He goes on to note how the Jews looked on the Gentiles as uncircumcised. You see, the Jewish people dismissed the rest of the world as uncircumcised, not because the Jews were the only ones who practiced the physical act of it, but because it was the physical sign of the covenant with the Lord. You see, to be uncircumcised then was to be separated from the Lord. If you weren't circumcised, you were not part of God's people. Paul then notes, though, look what he says, that this circumcision is made in the flesh by human hands. It's almost like he's hinting at something here, isn't it? He's, he's trying to drive home the point that, that what was is no longer what is important now. He's driving home the point that it belonged to the old order of Judaism with ex- external features. And Paul's saying this is no longer what's of utmost importance, but rather what's at the heart level. Paul goes on to elaborate on the pre-Christian past of the Gentiles. Here, Look at verse 12. First, he says that they were Christless. They were separated from Christ. That is, without the Messiah. You see, the Gentiles were separated from the messianic hope of Israel. Paul says in Romans 9 this about the Jews. They were Israelites, and to them belonged the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belonged the patriarchs. And from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. True, some Jews were and still are separated from Christ. But they have been told in the scriptures about the coming Messiah. These Gentiles, however, had no clue. They were separated. They were foreigners to these things. And to be separated from Christ personally, that is separated from his saving work in our lives, is to be excluded from the life of God. That's what he'll say in Ephesians 4.18. Think about that. To be separated from Christ, to be separated from the work of Christ is to be excluded from the life of God. I wonder, for those of you who are outside of Christ, have you thought about this much? Is there anything more terrible, more damning, more bad news than this. Not only does he say they were Christless, he said that they were foreigners in verse 12. He said they were excluded from the citizenship of Israel. They were strangers to the covenants of promise. The Gentiles were alienated from God's people. You see, Israel was a commonwealth or, or a nation under God, a theocracy. And Gentiles were foreigners, not part of it. But they were also not a covenant people. Right? The term covenant here implies a series of covenants throughout the Old Testament. The covenant of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Israel, David. And the word promise has to do with God's specific problem, promise to Abraham. That he would bless him and, and his family would be a blessing to all the nations. And Paul's point is that you Gentiles, not for you. Not for you. He's saying to be separated from the covenants of promise meant that they were missing the covenants that promised the Messiah. But he says a third thing here. He says that they were also hopeless and godless. While God did plan to bless all nations through Israel, the Gentiles had no idea about this because they did not know the promises. They did not have the hope of the promises, nor did they know the God of the promises. They had opted for idols instead of God, suppressing the truth revealed to them, Because they did not know God, they did not know hope 
And you see Paul is saying that before, he says, remember, right? Remember, Paul's audience here is who? Christians. He's writing to Christians. Look at Ephesians chapter 1. He's writing to Christians, but he's taking them back. He says, you weren't always a Christian, though, were you? Remember. So he starts out in verse 11 and 12 with, remember. Put yourself back in your old shoes. You were hopeless. You were godless. Before you and I trusted Christ for salvation, we were in this same tragic position. We were separated from God and his people. We too need to remember this fact. I don't care if you were born in this church, like physically in this church, born in the waters of baptism, doesn't matter. Before Christ, you were separated. You at one time were separated from Christ and the gospel community. And Paul's point in all this is he's going somewhere. He's going somewhere. But let's jump down to verse 19. That's, that's who we were. Let's look at who we are now. Who we are. Ephesians 2, verse 19. So then, you're no longer strangers and aliens. Do you see the connection he's making? He just said you were strangers. You, you were aliens. Now you're no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for, the Spirit, for God by the Spirit. You see, Paul finishes the chapter by reminding the Gentiles who they are right now. He says that they themselves have joined together with the Jewish brothers, the Jewish believers, and now belong to a new community. He gives three word pictures here. He says uh, uh, three, three more with or together words. He says fellow citizens uh, being built together and, and put together. These words emphasize that we have been synced not only to Christ. Listen, when you come to Christ, it's not just you and Jesus but it's you and Jesus and a whole lot of other believers. That's, a, that's Paul's point. This is your identity. And to illustrate this identity, Paul uses these three word pictures, citizens, family, and stones in a temple. Let's take these in turn. First, Paul says that they are no longer refuge. Now they have citizenship. The citizenship is a kingdom citizenship. The Gentile believers are not second-class citizens in someone else's territory. They are full members of the kingdom. While in reality God rules over everything, here the kingdom of God refers to where God has special rule over his people. That is, where his privileges are enjoyed and the responsibilities are carried out. That's his kingdom. He's saying you're, you're part of it. We are waiting for the king to return. Right now, presently, we are waiting for the king to return to set up the full realization of this kingdom, but even now we live in the kingdom of God. You see, Paul's writing during a time in which Roman citizenship was prized. To be a Roman was to be somebody. And Roman citizens had wonderful privileges. Citizenship in a great country is a blessing. But Paul's point is there's nothing like being a citizen of the kingdom of God. Foreigners in another city or country often feel vulnerable. They have to keep their papers with them at all times. Always willing to show, always willing to answer why they're there. But Paul says, in the new kingdom here, you don't have to feel that way. Rather, you belong. 
We are part of the kingdom that has no end. The only kingdom that has no end. He says, you're a part of it. Not only that, he, he then moves to this, this members of God's family there in verse 19. He says, his, his metaphor of God's new community changes to something a little bit more personal. It goes from a kingdom to a family. You might imagine Jew and Gentile together in one kingdom, but to think of them in one family is stunning. Elsewhere, Paul says that we are God's household, 1 Timothy 3.15. And so the question is, how are we one family? Some might ask. Paul says, we have the same father. Paul just made the point in 2.18, and we'll, we'll get there in a minute, but, but he says that we have access to the father. We are adopted children. The church is made up of adopted brothers and sisters. Listen, you, if you are in Christ, have been adopted by the father. And you are not an only child. Rather, you have brothers and sisters who, whom he's also adopted. We also have responsibilities in the family. We're one family, each fulfilling our role, bringing glory to our Father. In 1 Timothy 5, 1 and 2, Paul says that we should treat one another like family. The church is not a building we go to or an event we attend. The church, rather, is a family, living life together on mission. The church is not a hotel where sometimes you come, sometimes come and stay and visit, giving a tip if you're well served. But rather, the church is a part of your Christian identity. And understand that we all have a role in God's household. Finally, Paul says his third metaphor here that we have been, uh, this has been vivid for his audience. For nearly 1,000 years, the temple had been a focal point of Israel. People came from all over to see the temple, from Solomon to Zerubbabel to Herod. Now there was a new temple, Paul's saying, made up of people. In verse 20, Paul says the foundation of the temple was God's word. The apostles and prophets were teachers. And here, Paul emphasizes their teaching. He's probably referring to, to the New Testament prophets, but even within the range of the Old Testament prophets to the New Testament prophets, there was continuity in their teaching. This, this emphasis should not surprise us, right? Like the church stands or falls based on its faithfulness to this word, God's word. Luke says that the early church devoted themselves to the apostles' teachings in Acts 2.42. This is, this is foundational, right? Why this is the cornerstone. Right? All of our preaching, all of our life together in community, all stems and flows out of this word. If at any point we look at the world and say, they seem to be doing something better than we are, and we move towards that direction, we've stepped out of bounds. All of our life together, all of that we know of Christ, all of our life in Christ is rooted in this word. We see the cornerstone mentioned. He says there's only one cornerstone, that's Jesus. He makes the whole building possible. The whole community is built on him. He gives security to the building, and he gives it alignment. While the apostles' teaching is being emphasized, you see, Jesus' person and work are also emphasized. Jesus is also how the church grows and is held together. There is no unity or growth if Christ is not the cornerstone. You see, Paul likens people to stones here. He says that, that in the Lord you also are being built together for God's dwelling. Peter says something similar, calling us living stones. He says well, we, we are carefully shaped, building blocks fitted to build this temple. Each 
new member in Christ is added to this temple. You see, in 1 Corinthians 6.19, Paul refers to individuals being a temple of the Spirit. But here and in other places, the people make up the temple. You see, by Paul saying you also here, he's referring to the Gentiles being added to this building. Previously, the Gentiles were not even allowed to enter the temple. But now, they can not only enter it, but they're a part of it. Even though the Israelites knew God did not dwell in temples made by hands, they recognized that God promised to dwell in the temple's inner sanctuary. Now, his special presence is not limited to a place or a building or an ethnicity. God's presence is spread worldwide, wherever people believe in Christ. Notice it is in the Lord that we are a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Through Christ, by the Spirit of God, God dwells in us personally and as a community. Ultimately, the reality will never be fully realized here and now until the new heavens and the new earth are made where God makes his dwelling place with man. You see, a great temple stood in Ephesus to whom uh, Paul is writing. In Jerusalem, they had a great temple. But Paul says through Christ, by the Spirit, there is a better temple. It is made up of people of every tribe and tongue. And we are joined together and built together. Each one is related to the other in a special way. We are all growing together in Christ. Listen, what this means for us right now, here, now, how you live your life to matter. He said, Pastor, this is all well and good, but how does this affect me tomorrow? Listen, it means every person in your life counts. It means there are no second-class citizens in God's kingdom. It means we need one another's time. Our talent, our treasure, our love, our resources, our encouragement, our rebuke. We are to live the Christian life together as a multi-ethnic temple centered in Christ, rooted in the teaching of Scripture. That's where Paul ends this chapter. And he says, this is who you were. And this is who you are. My question for you, and Paul's question for you is, how did we get here? What, what changed, Pastor? Paul's main thrust, underlying question is, how did this happen? How do you go from being complete outsiders, strangers, separated from Christ and from the covenants of promise to being citizens of God's kingdoms and members of his family? How could this happen? Look at verse 13. I'm glad you asked. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who are far off and peace to those who were near for through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. You see, in Christ's work, in his death and resurrection, it was not simply making your relationship with God better. It was not merely a, a, a reshuffling of the deck so that your sin went on to Christ and now all between you and God is clear. That's true, by the way. That's true. But Paul's point is not that here. But rather, his point is that not only is everything clear between you and God, but everything between you and one another. 
There was a vertical purpose, but there was also a horizontal purpose in Christ's death. It was through the cross we are not only reconciled to God, but also reconciled to one another. If this is not the most significant passage on the church, it is definitely one of the key passages on the nature of the church. And it's the cross of Christ at the center of it all. You see, these verses 13 through 18 are sandwiched in between who the Gentiles were and who they had become. And these middle verses describe the cross. Notice the phrases here, the the blood of the Christ in His flesh through the cross. You see, it's through the cross we overcome our alienation from God, but it's also through the cross that we overcome our alienation with one another. And you see, these, these verses are very similar to, to Ephesians 2, 1 through 4, right? Like the, 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 the section right before this, Paul's doing something here, right? Look, look at verse 1. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Doesn't that sound a lot like verses 11 and 12? But notice verse 4. He says, But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us. And then he goes on to explain what happened what grace is. But verse 4 is not the only great but statement here. You see, a dramatic change has occurred. We ask the question, how did the Gentiles go from being aliens, strangers, uh, unknown uh, of what the covenants of the promise are, to now being citizens of the kingdom of God? Verse 13 happened. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. You see, it's by the blood of Christ that we can be brought near to God. Only by His blood can we be reconciled to God. You see, historically, Christ died on the cross. It was public, visible. It was on a hill not far away from the sight of all the people. His death would be like crucifying someone today in a shopping mall. Everyone would see it. Theologically, Christ died on behalf of sinners. He bore our punishment. He took our place that we might be declared righteous, we receive the benefits of forgiveness, righteousness, and new life. But experientially, we encounter the effect of the cross by our union with Christ. Notice that it says in Christ Jesus that we experience the benefits of His shed blood. There was a past event that is experienced now in the present. This is what gives us peace with God and with others today. You'll notice that the cross is central to all of this, all of this, Townend said in his hymn, it was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. Consider the wretchedness for a moment of your sin and the amazing grace of your blood-soaked but now risen and reigning Savior. After saying Christ's death is what brought us near, Paul goes on to add more results, though he doesn't stop here. Notice the verbs in these sections. They emphasize that Christ has done what Christ has done in order to reverse our condition. He says things like made one, tore down, made of no effect, create, reconcile, proclaimed. Notice Paul also shifts in this section from a you to a we, to a R. Both Jew and Gentile have the same hope. 
Christ's atoning death. There is no other means by, why, by which men can be saved. Consider three things the Savior has done for us through his reconciling work on the cross. Number one, Christ has brought us peace. Look at verse 14. For he himself is our peace. Jesus has brought us peace with God and others. Jesus is the peacemaker. Paul says peace is found in a person. Jesus, you, you, you look at your life and you wonder, where's all my peace gone? Simply ask, where is Jesus? Because there you will find your peace. This was described in the Old Testament. Isaiah 9, 6, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. The government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. But it was also affirmed in the Gospels. John 14, 27, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give it to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, and neither let them be afraid. It was not only described in the New Testament and affirmed in the Gospels, but it was explained in the epistles. Romans 5.1, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, Christ has brought us peace. Number two, Christ has made us one. This might be the main point of what Paul is actually getting after here. Look at verse 14 who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. You see, he says he's broken down the dividing wall. Christ's blood has obliterated the old, long-standing division between Jew and Gentile. While Paul was writing this letter, there stood a physical, literal wall in the temple that excluded the Gentiles. Uh, Josephus, a historian in the time of Christ, tells us that attached to the barrier at intervals were messages in Greek and Latin warning that the Gentiles must not go any farther lest they die. The temple was destroyed in A.D. 70, but it was destroyed spiritually in A.D. 33, when Christ Jesus died on the cross for sinners. You see, in his flesh, Jesus tore down the wall that separated these two people groups. Not only that, but, but, but he says that the, this law consisting of commands and expressed in ordinances, the, the ceremonial law, right? The, 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 the parallel passage in Colossians chapter 2, verse 11 uh, it alludes to circumcision, questions about food and drink, regulations about festivals and new moons and the Sabbath. All of these commands, all of these regulations put up a huge wall between the Jews and the Gentiles. And Jesus just sets it all aside by dying on the cross. You see, at the cross, Jesus fulfilled all the shadows and all the types of which the ceremonial system was pointing to. But Paul also is saying that Jesus abolished the law as a means of salvation through his death on the cross. As he says in Colossians, Jesus has erased the certificate of death with its obligations that was against us and opposed to us. Has taken it out, by the way, by nailing it to the cross. A person is only accepted by God through the work of Christ, not through your own work. 
John Stott, a famous preacher, uh, summarizes this by saying, Jesus abolished both the regulations of the ceremonial law and the condemnation of the moral law. Both were divisive and both were put aside by the cross. And as a result of this, look what, look, look what he does. Christ creates in himself one new man from the two. Jesus' abolishing of something old has led to something new. That's what Paul's saying. So there's, there's one new humanity. You see, Christ has created one new man. In Christ and in Christ alone, this man exists. In Christ, a new corporate entity exists, which is the church. It is not as though the Jews are being transformed into the Gentiles. And it's not as if the Gentiles are now being transformed into Jews. But rather, God's done away with both categories of thought. And has created one new man, one better man. That's what he's saying. They're not, they're not merely becoming one, though that is true, but they have become something better than. Paul is arguing that they have become something entirely new and entirely better. You see, we like to build fences today. People do this in all sorts of ways. But Paul's point is that the cross of Jesus is what brings unity. Racism among believers cannot be justified. It must be resisted. Paul says elsewhere, Galatians 3.28, There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Colossians 3.11, In Christ there is not Greek or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. He said, Diversity in the church... Is a glorious demonstration of the work of Christ. It is to be celebrated as it pictures heaven and as things will be one day. It demonstrates this one new man that Paul was referring to. And Paul elaborates a little bit here in verse 16. He says, And might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Paul speaks of the double reconciliation here that has taken place, stating that hostility, that thing which divides, that fence which separates, it's no more. Therefore, as Christians, you and I are to be a people who forgive one another because of the forgiveness of Christ. You and I should be people of unity and not disunity because believers in Christ have a fresh comprehension of the cross. You see, only believers who truly understand the cross and truly understand all that God did in Christ through the cross and what He accomplished for us will be unified. Number two, Christ preached peace. Verse 17, the cross of Christ is how our peace was achieved, but now it is to be announced and proclaimed. Commentators debate on this verse that this is referring to Jesus' earthly ministry of preaching, the crucifixion itself as a, as a type of symbol of proclaiming peace, or his post-resurrection proclamation of peace, or the ongoing proclamation of what you and I do in the church today, which is continue to tell people about God's grace. I'm not sure that has to be either one of these. Jesus certainly proclaimed the gospel of peace before the cross, on the cross and after the cross and after the resurrection. And now you and I as followers of Him must be ready to preach the gospel of peace. We are to tell the world of how people can have peace with God. 
The application is simple. Christ proclaims peace through his followers today. If you're a Christian, your message is one of peace, not of war and hostility. By the Holy Spirit, Christ proclaims his peace through ordinary people like you and I. The world wants peace. And only when we preach Christ can people actually have it. Paul adds that the good news was preached to those far away and those who were near. That is, to both the Jews and the Gentiles. The whole world needs the gospel, folks. Let us be faithful in sharing it. Finally, Christ has given us access to God. Those who respond to Jesus' work and message now have access to God. Notice this this language that Paul uses in verse 18 here. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. Notice, notice this Trinitarian language. It's Christ, the Spirit, and the Father, all right here. This is what prayer is about. Prayer is about conversation with the Father through the Son by the Spirit. The ongoing benefit of Christ's reconciliation is that today, right now, you and I have access to this God. We can now come to God with boldness because of what Christ has done. We should marvel at the privilege of prayer and the stunning grace of the Savior. However, Paul's not just emphasizing what you get here. He's emphasizing that both the Jew and the Gentile come together and approach God through Christ by the Spirit. We live out our new position in Christ and in our new community by the Spirit of God. We all approach God the same way now. There's not two ways. There's only one way to God, and that's through Christ. By the Spirit. We have access to God through the Savior and peace that flows in abundance because of the substitute of Him on the cross in our place. If you're not a believer, today you can transfer your guilt to another. Look to Christ and believe. It's easy to insulate ourselves in our culture and think that we have no underlying issues around unity or diversity. Our church will never be a multi-ethnic church simply because of the area in which we live is not multi-ethnic. However, this does not mean that we should not seek gospel unity in other ways. At the heart level, we need to be able to ask ourselves, is there anything in us that would try to separate or build up a fence between us and other believers? I want to leave you with these questions and an answer, and I'll get out of your way. How does the death of Jesus give you peace? How does the death of Jesus dispel all conflict between all people groups? How does the gospel fundamentally change the way we view one another? How is it that the death of Christ makes it possible for all men and all women to live in unity? Answer. In the death of Jesus, all are made one. And in the death of Jesus, all things which would separate us from one another have been crucified with Christ. Because of this, because Christ was killed, therefore racism was killed. Because Christ was killed, therefore Jewish and Gentile divides have been killed. Because Christ was killed, therefore prejudice was killed. Because Christ was killed, therefore sexism has been killed. Because Christ was killed, therefore all forms of bigotry and all other ways in which they display themselves have been killed. All of that's true. What Paul just said 
is that there's one now one new humanity, one people group in Christ. Doesn't matter whether you're black, white, red, brown, purple. All are one in Christ. Therefore, we should live our lives in such a way that shows this in unity for one another. Let's pray. Father God, we love you. We thank you for the reconciling work of the cross. Lord, in your death, you not only made peace with you possible, but peace with one another. Therefore, let us examine our hearts this morning. Let us see if there's any deep-rooted upbringing, whatever it might be, that would separate us even now from one another. You have not called us to divide ourselves, but rather we live in harmony and unity with one another on the basis of Christ's death. As surely as we believe that Jesus dying for our sins sets us free from the penalty of the law, so we believe that in Jesus' death on the cross, there's now no reason for which we cannot love one another. Pray you help us believe this, live this, and walk it out in our context, in the here and now. May we think of ways in which we can show this gospel unity I pray that you would help us in it. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.